Right, amen. Matthew 1, uh, 18 to 25, God's word says this. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit, from God. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name, what, Jesus, for he will, this is beautiful, he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. There seems to be a common theme throughout the last few sermons I've preached, even stretching back into our time in uh, Peter's second letter. Uh, It's the reality, and we keep preaching, we keep coming to this theme over and over again. It's the reality that God is involved in his creation, in the world, and all who live in it. Now, a few hundred years ago, the the founding of our nation, our country, uh, many of the founding fathers were what we would call deist, okay? A deist is somebody who believes in God, but believes that God created everything, basically spun it, got the engine running, spun it into existence, and then believes that God has kind of withdrawn himself, and he's just watching everything play out, okay? It's kind of the idea of like a great cosmic watchmaker. They made a watch, they wound it up and spun it into existence, but they're no longer, he's no longer involved, and that's just not found in Scripture. Uh, actually, Thomas Jefferson is noted as going through the Bible and cutting out parts of the Bible that were supernatural or miracles because he didn't believe in any of that stuff. He believed that God was distant and uninvolved, but we find here in Matthew in the coming of Jesus that God is very much involved in his creation. And I would say, if, if I could name this morning a dominant religion or belief in American culture, it stems from this idea of deism, or that God's just kind of distant. I don't think the dominant religion in America is Islam, obviously, or, or Judaism, or even Roman Catholicism, or even evangelical Christianity. Rather, it would be what some would call, and I use three words, I've thrown this out to you before, moralistic, okay, right, live a good life, be a good person, therapeutic, okay, feel good, right? You hear this, be happy. I just want to be happy. And there's nothing wrong with being a good person and being happy. I want to be a good person. I want to be be happy, right? That's a good thing. So moralistic, therapeutic, and then here's the word that I was just explaining, deism, right? We, in life, I want to, I want to live a good life. I want to be happy. And every once in a while, I'm going to acknowledge God. I'm going to sprinkle a little bit of prayer in my life. And I want him to be involved, but I only want him to be involved when I have a problem. Okay. It's basically like a, like a genie in a, in a lamp type of God. Like, I just want to rub the lamp. God, come do what I want you to do. And then you can go back to your great cosmic recliner, lazy boy, and keep eating popcorn and seeing how things unfold. But that's just not simply the God that we find in the Bible. Through Joseph's eyes, even though we have a, a seemingly good man, he's, he's called in this passage just and righteous, we can see clearly in the life of Joseph 
that God is not distant, but he is indeed interested and involved. And dare I say, uh, the scripture teaches he's heavily influencing the affairs of the world. God is sovereign. He's in control. He's in over all things. And this is our main idea. Three words simply put this way. God is involved. God is involved. We witness God's direct involvement from the outset of Matthew's gospel as an angel, okay, sent from the Lord, intervenes in Joseph, Mary's, and the yet-born Jesus' life, okay? This angel's interjecting himself into the situation. God is involved. Uh, Verses 19 to 20 in, in Matthew chapter 1 says this, and her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, uh, so he's righteous, he's, he's a good guy, resolved to divorce her quietly. I want to pause there because that sounds weird. They were just engaged, basically. But in this culture, engagement was a much more serious uh, connection to one another. Most marriages were arranged, and so Mary and Joseph were engaged as we know it. Uh, but that had a, a deeper connection, even though uh, the marriage was not consummated at this point. They basically were viewed as husband and wife. And so in order for Joseph to be able to leave Mary, uh, he would have had to have divorced her legally. It goes on. But as he considered, so Joseph's thinking about these things. He doesn't know the whole story. He doesn't know that Mary has, has conceived with the Holy Spirit. Rather, he thinks, obviously, that Mary's been out fooling around. And she's pregnant with somebody else's child. And so I'm righteous and just. I want a righteous and just wife. I cannot marry her. But as he considered these things, uh, the Bible says this, Behold, here it is, God is involved. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, right? God's not distant. God's involved. We see the heart of Joseph here, which we're going to get to in a brief moment. But most importantly, we understand that God is actively involved in the affairs of the earth, in the affairs of his creation. God has a will and a plan. And here's, here's a truth you can walk away with. Nothing will stop it. Nothing will thwart it. God is, is never unprepared or caught off guard. And now we're going we're gonna to break this up. Sometimes I'll do this. I'll kind of start with some of the ending points first, and then we're going to swing back around and talk a lot about Jesus Uh, But first, we're going to look at Joseph's life, because Joseph, there's some great moral lessons that we can draw from Joseph, and those are good things. So our first point is this. Through Joseph's life, we see the distinguishing mark of Christian character is this. Hear this word, is obedience. It's obedience to God. And we see this couched in the righteousness, okay? The Bible uses the word just here, which also could mean righteous, uh, the righteousness of Joseph. But also, you see it couched in compassion that he has towards Mary. I think of it this way. Joseph is just, he's just a good dude. He's a good guy. We'll find later that he, he's willing to adopt this child as his own, to teach him uh, to be a carpenter, to bring him up in the ways of the Lord. Looking back to verse 19, he finds out his soon-to-be wife is pregnant. Okay, He doesn't know everything that's going on just yet. We have to assume at this point he's shocked. He's beside himself, he's disappointed, he's hurt, he's angry, and yet the Bible highlights this about his character. It says that he is just. We could use the word righteous. And we also see the compassionate heart of Joseph. Again, Joseph at this point can safely assume, before the angel has come, that Mary has committed adultery in their relationship, thus the reason she's pregnant, and the penalty for such an offense 
according to the law, would be these things, that she would stand public trial, that she would be humiliated, and ultimately she would be put to death. She would be stoned. The righteousness of Joseph is known insofar as he he desires to uphold the law so he knows what he has to do about the situation. And his righteousness is so deep within him that he desires to be wed to a woman that upholds the law and is pure. And he couches this now, his, his justice and his righteousness, the beauty of Joseph, with compassion. And he, he didn't desire harm upon Mary. He doesn't des- desire severe harm to come to her, and so he upholds his, his righteous response and also protects Mary from severe public shame and harm. He's, he's a stand-up guy, we find here. But instead of moving forward with divorcing Mary, we see the heart of distinguishing character we find in Joseph is this. Above both of those things is that he's an obedient man. He's obedient to the Lord. An angel comes and reveals what has truly happened, okay? right? The veil's kind of pulled back. This is what's actually going on. It says, and then Joseph awakes, verses 24 and 25, when Joseph woke from sleep, notice, here it is, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded. He was obedient to the word of God. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. Right? What did the angel tell him to name the child? Jesus. What does he do? And he called his name Jesus, right? He didn't say Joseph Jr. He said Jesus. Joseph trusted the word of God, he trusted God bringing this message through an angel, and he does this. Simply put, he obeys the command of the Lord. He was obedient. We see this distinguishing characteristic as we move further into Jesus' childhood. There's a number of instances where we see Joseph obey this angel of the Lord. Looking at uh, Matthew now, chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, and then 19 and 21. Here's two different instances. Okay, Now, there was a king in, in the area that didn't like that this child king had been born, Jesus, Herod, and he's wanting to kill all the kids under a certain age. And says the Bible says now, now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord, okay, once again appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, or Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Okay, notice here. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. What did he do? He obeyed the word of the Lord. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. Okay, so time has passed. And then what does Joseph do? And he rose and he took the child and his mother and went back to the land of Israel, right? The distinguishing mark of Christian character is obedience to God. This is a positive thing that we can draw from this passage, that we would obey the word of the Lord. Joseph repeatedly obeys what God commands. But, okay, it's easy in this passage to just kind of sit on these surface-level teachings and focus on on the good-natured Joseph and all the things that he did well, and he did, and he should be commended, and we should model similar behavior as to Joseph. We should be people of righteousness, we should be people of, of compassion, and we should, we must obey the word of God. 
But there is a central figure to this text, and it's not Joseph. If we, if we just only focus on Joseph here, we, we miss the forest for the trees, right? We're just looking at one guy. But the main character of this text is, is the main character of God's redemptive plan and story, and his name is Jesus. God is involved. We want to take these practical uh, moral and ethical nuggets uh, from Joseph and we want to apply them to our lives, but we have to look at this true main character of Matthew's gospel, Jesus. And in this passage, we find two things about Jesus. We're going to find a name and we're going to find a title. Okay, A name and a title. That's our next two points. So our second point is this. Now we're looking through Joseph's eyes. Okay, We looked at Joseph's life. Now we're looking through his eyes. Through Joseph's eyes, we find that Jesus comes, what? To take away our sin. Jesus comes to take away our sins. Now, now, oftentimes, we can, I'm guilty of this, we, we minimize our thought of sin. We think of just kind of outward shortcomings, you know, a lie here or there, or a little bit of gossip, or, or a little bit of judgmentalism towards somebody. And sin is often defined by outward actions. But sin isn't just at the surface of our being, but cuts to the depths of the human condition. Why do we do these things outwardly? Here's the truth. Jesus came, when it says he's dealing with sin here, Jesus came to set right what we have done so wrong. And the greatest sin that exists, and the key driver for these outward visual sins that we see and we experience, anybody been sinned against? Anybody been lied to? Yes. We've all experienced sin against us and have sinned against other people. But the key driver for, for the outward visual sins we see is this. Here's the heart of sin. It's a failure to uphold the glory of God. We were made in the image of God to glorify him for all of eternity, and we have fallen short of that because of our sin nature, because we instinctually elevate our will and our desires above the commands of God. We believed uh, the deceptive call of Satan when he said, did God really say? And we elevate our will above the will of God. Matthew 1, 20 to 21 says this, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Okay, This is important. Why? Because the sin chain has been broken. God is, is coming and has been conceived through God himself in Mary. The sin chain has been broken in Jesus. She will bear a son and you shall call his, here it is, his name is Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins from their lack of ability to be able to glorify God on their own. Salvation is, is now revealed in this small baby growing within his mother Mary. All our hopes and desires as human beings for peace and justice and harmony. Who wants that? I want that. I want peace and justice and harmony among all humankind rests on the shoulders of this child. Jesus, the one who will save people from their sins. But many in that time and in this time, they didn't understand the nature of his coming. 
They longed for one who would immediately satisfy their desires. They wanted immediate gratification. They wanted a king like David that would go to the throne and would smash their oppressors, the the Romans, to overcome the Roman oppressors who stood over Israel. But Jesus didn't outwardly satisfy their desires. Instead, he came and dealt with the true root cause of the Roman oppression, the innate fallen desire of every human heart to do this, to do what it wants. And we struggle with the same thing. I just want to do what I want to do. That's why Jeremiah could say the heart is what? Deceitful above all things. It's not inclined to go about according to God's commands and statutes. The theologian John Calvin once said the, the heart, the human heart is a perpetual factory of idols. And Jesus came to deal with that. And he does so by coming into the world and living perfectly in our place. This is what he did, family. This is the good news. That's why we call it gospel. Jesus is fully obedient to the law and to the will of the Father, even unto death. So that he could, this is what he did, substitute himself for those who will place their faith and trust in his work And he does this, family, hear this. He covers us with his righteousness. He did what we were unable to do. And here's the thing. This is not just in the Gospels. It's all throughout Scripture. Remember what this, the human author, under the inspiration of the Spirit said, he said this is fulfilling a prophecy. It's fulfilling what was talked about beforehand. And so we can see this theme all throughout Scripture. If we just rifle through the pages of Scripture, we see it in the covering of Adam and Eve's nakedness in the garden. What did God do? He sacrificed an animal, and He covered their nakedness and shame. That's what Jesus does for us. We see it in the washing of the world with water in the flood, in the refining fire of Sodom and Gomorrah, the substitutionary sacrifice in the thicket on the mountain with Abraham and Isaac, the scapegoat running from the camp, and the unblemished lamb at Passover with this, with his blood covering the doorpost for God's people. And here's the truth. We see it clearly in the New Testament when John the Baptist declares these words, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we see it in another John. John, the beloved disciple of Jesus, when he gives us this beautiful pastor's heart in 1 John chapter 2, uh, 1 and 2. I love this, these two verses. He says, My little children, right? My friends, My beloved, I love you. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, right? I want to encourage you. Be like Joseph. Be obedient to the word of God. Be righteous. Be compassionate. Then he says, but, right? Anybody in here got a sin problem? I do. All right, I'm the only one. He says, but if anyone does sin, okay, me and you, we have, this is a beautiful word, we have an advocate. Someone petitioning on our behalf with the Father. Listen to this title. Jesus Christ the righteous. He is 
The propitiation for our sins. I love that word. What does it mean? It means that Jesus has absorbed the full wrath of God. He's averted the wrath of God and he has given us his righteousness and the favor of God through Christ is upon you, Christian. It's so beautiful. I'm willing to sacrifice my voice for this truth this morning. He is a propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. For anyone who will place their faith, trust, confidence in the finished work of Jesus, they can have eternal salvation with Christ. And the sin problem that we had was what? Glorifying God. Through Jesus, we can glorify God for all of eternity together. That's what church is. It's just a foretaste of what's coming for eternity. The sin problem has been dealt with. The Son of God lived perfectly in our place. This is, coming back, it's the beauty of the Christmas season. That the King has come. He lived perfectly. He's died as a propitiation, right? Wrath averted. Favor poured out on His people. He's conquered sin and death through His resurrection. And He reigns, church. His name is Jesus. That's just his name. Now we look at a title. Jesus has a title given in this passage. Point number three, through Joseph's eyes, we understand that Jesus is God with us. Man, I love talking about this stuff. This is fun. Through Joseph's eyes, we understand that Jesus is God with us. This is such good news. And we see this just like we connected the sin covering all throughout Scripture, pointing to Christ. We see this play out all throughout Scripture as well. God is present and desires to be present with His people. Right? He's not just some moralistic, therapeutic, deistic God who's distant and uninvolved and sitting back. God wants to be in the thick of it with you. Beside you and in you. And we see it all over the Scriptures. It's everywhere. We'll look first, Matthew uh, uh, 1, verse 22 to 23. It says this, all this took place, here's here's important, to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Okay, now, Matthew's going to refer to the Old Testament. Behold, this is beautiful, this was our reading this morning. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means what? Say it with me, God with us. I gotta take a water break. This we learned uh, last week originates with Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah. It's found in Isaiah seven fourteen. At the time, it was like seven hundred or so years prior to this. The this, this is amazing if you actually go back and read the whole passage where this prophecy is taken. Like things aren't going well. And we just pull this little nugget out and we, and we focus it all on Christ, but we're not reading it in context of what Isaiah is getting at. See, at this point in time, God's people, his people in which the Messiah is to come from and, and all of the nations and all the earth are supposed to be blessed through his people, they've fought with each other and they've divided out into two kingdoms. And there's an evil king reigning in Judah, the southern kingdom. And they're in serious trouble because kingdoms all around them are wanting to invade and take them under control. 
And Isaiah speaks this prophecy to this evil king, extending hope if Ahaz will receive it. But as is often the case, sin continues its death grip on the heart of Ahaz, just like this thing has a death grip on my vocal cords in my throat. And Ahaz aligns with, with the Assyrians. And instead of, take, instead of going God's way and being obedient to the blessing of God, Ahaz gives himself over to a, to a worldly solution to his problem. I'll take military power. You come in and have my back. And this creates, down the road, it's immediately it helps them. But down the road, it creates a myriad of issues for the southern kingdom, which eventually will be overtaken and exiled away from the promised land for decades. And it's in this that we learn of this great prophecy of which Matthew says here, under the inspiration of the Spirit, took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Here's the reality. There is indeed a near and ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy. And in it, we see in both of these how God's character is perfectly upheld. You see, Ahaz rejected the grace of God to be with them, and he took the seemingly easier path, employing worldly power and might to help them. Like, you ever been there before? Maybe, obviously, you didn't employ, like, a military power to help you. But you see, like, God leading you a certain way, but, man, that's going to be tough, and i got to trust you, God. I'm taking the easy way out. I'm just going to lie. I'm just going to cover it up. I'm just going to keep sweeping this situation under the rug instead of following what the Lord commands. And so he, he took this seemingly easier path, which ended up being a troublesome path. And again, it may have solved the problem for a season, but it was the demise of Judah in the long run. And ultimately, uh, quoting a, a pastor, Daniel Doriani, who actually commentated on this section here a little bit for me and helped me understand it, commenting on the story of Ahaz, he says this, I think this is a great lesson. He says, the original Emmanuel prophecy meant that God offers to be present to bless. But, as Ahaz did, if we refuse his blessing, he's still present. He's still God with us, but he's with us in a different way, to judge. And that's what happened. God judged the southern kingdom, and they were exiled, and their land was destroyed for decades. How often do we take the path of Ahaz, the, the, the easy, quick solution, instead of doing this, lifting our eyes to the great promises and plan of not our distant God, but our involved God? In, in Jesus, we understand the, the positive fulfillment of this prophecy. Our God saves, right? He saves us from our sin. That's his name is Jesus. And we see this, God is with us. In our last point, we trace salvation uh, from sin throughout Scripture. And now we look at this beautiful title and promise of Jesus that he is God with us. We see it all throughout, littered through the pages of the Bible. In the Garden of Eden, we see it. God communed with Adam and Eve before the fall. We see God with us in the cloud of fire and smoke that led the Israelites from the pursuing Egyptians. We see God with us on Mount Sinai in the giving of his law to Moses. We see God with us in the tent tabernacle, traveling with the Israelites through the desert. We see it in Solomon's temple in all of its majesty and glory, both places where the tabernacle and the temple, both places where God's presence dwells. And we see it here. 
This is the most beautiful picture of God's presence with us. We see it in the Lord Jesus and his sandal-clad feet walking through the sandy streets of Galilee and Jerusalem, calling the weak and humble and hurting, healing the sick, giving sight to the blind, and preaching the word of God with authority. And we see it. We have it now. Through faith in Jesus, you have this beautiful gift. We see it in the giving of God's Spirit to be with us upon salvation through Christ, God with us. And Jesus gives us, I want to encourage you this week, read John chapter 17. Write that down. Read the whole of John chapter 17. I wish I could do it this morning, but I can't. We're just going to look at verses 24 to 26. It's called the high priestly prayer of Jesus. Jesus gives us this beautiful... It's just heart-wrenching as you read it. Use this beautiful prayer to remind us of, of this great plan and fulfillment to be with us. Jesus says this, Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, may be with me where I am. You see that? God with us. To see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Again, God not caught off guard. He knows exactly what's going to happen. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known. Here it is right here. This is beautiful. That the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and notice this, and I in them. God with us and in us. And ultimately, in God's time, we understand that, that even though God is within us in the person of the Holy Spirit, right? God's personal presence within us, Jesus will return. And the whole earth will be filled with his glory. And the chaos and calamity that dominates the world, family, it's going to melt away. And new creation will burst forth. It's like the winter here, man. I'm going to be honest with you, this place is just ugly in the winter, isn't it? Like a bunch of naked sticks out there. But, but spring burst forth, and, and the, the leaves start to come out, and it's new every spring, isn't it? And it's beautiful. Especially them little trees, the little pink flowers, you know what I'm talking about? I love those ones. That's what we can think of when, when Christ returns, the chaos and calamity will just melt away and new creation like, like spring blooming. I think it's a reminder of God every year that there's something new and better coming. God reveals this promise ultimately through a revelation to John the Apostle where he says this, Revelation 21.3. Again, I always want to emphasize this under the inspiration of the Spirit. This is as God intended it. The Bible says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, hear this promise. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. God with us. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. That's beautiful. So reminiscent of Ezekiel 37. And God himself will be with them as their God. Amen. God with us. This is the great celebration of the Christmas season. 
through Joseph's eyes, we understand that, that Jesus has come to fix the problem of sin, death, and chaos. And he is Emmanuel, God with us. Amen.